Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 48, The Battle of Port Royal, The First Emancipation, November 7th, 1861. We come back to discuss the Union Naval Initiatives once more. Now, to be clear, we are temporarily skipping over some major events on land, but now is a good time to see what the Union is doing and still doing at sea in the fall of 1861. And next week will also cover naval affairs and the diplomatic fallout thereof. But don't worry, we'll return back around at the subject of land campaigns soon enough. When Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells and his exceptionally capable right-hand Gustavus Vassa Fox looked at any map of the coastline of the United States, they saw problem after problem. However, they also now saw opportunity after opportunity, and the Battle of Hatteras Inlet proved it. By midsummer, the blockade was already beginning to take hold. Not an invincible shield, but still an immediate and obvious threat that instantly cut Confederate shipping down to a trickle. The majority of ships still evaded the blockade if they ran it. But even so, the Navy proved a formidable danger. In fact, the trouble from Wells' perspective was not so much that the Navy lacked the military might, but that lacked the ability to consistently project it strong enough or far enough. Behind this lay a problem simple to describe but tricky to correct. Ships on blockade duty had only so many supplies and could carry only so much coal. While to some degree the sailors could easily be motivated to stay on duty for long periods, they too would also eventually require replacement and rotation. Navies, of course, had ways to mitigate these problems, but those also came with other problems. Although resupply at sea was possible, it was also tricky business except in the calmest of waters, and by a seemingly perverse inevitability, something would always get lost to the ocean. And that was just boxes of provisions. Piles of coal were not so easy to move around in the best of times, let alone moving from ship to ship by rowboat. In short, this was a painstaking, arduous task, and not the preference of the Navy. Besides, it meant inefficiently detaching other ships to send everything. However, ships returning to ports faced an annoyingly long trip. Since the Navy had just lost almost every friendly port in the Confederacy, they had no place to get supplies except from the North. There they had supplies in quantity, but ships usually had to go pick them up in person. One final irritating nuisance lay in the difficult issue of engine refits. The engines in these vessels were, by modern standards, primitive and simple. Indeed, the crews happily made many repairs themselves with onboard blacksmith tools and a little ingenuity. After all, young sailors for centuries learned from their first voyages to fix whatever they could as fast as they could. Yet the engines always wore down regardless. Remember that the steam engine, at least those powerful enough to move entire ships over the sea, was newfangled technology in those days. Many of the older naval officers still in service went to sea long before any practical steamships existed. Even an American officer of middling years might have heard, as a boy, the news of the steamship Savannah's history-making cruise across the Atlantic. And although steamships had become the norm, no longer the exception, in naval service, they had by no means been perfected. Breakdowns were irritatingly commonplace and accepted as the normal course of things, just another hold patch. It would take another decade of development to truly perfect the steam warship. 
Ships still had sails as backups, but by necessity, they would have to travel all the way back to a northern port for refits and major repairs one way or the other. All this took time, and even more coal and supplies to manage. And while the Navy grew tenfold in the early war period alone, that was hardly enough to constantly police the waters of the Confederacy, with its vast coastline. Every ship detached from blockade to refuel or repair meant that much more pressure and difficulty on the remaining vessels, which already could hardly watch every angle or every bay. All of these issues percolated for Gideon Wells' eyes in the daily reports of blockade duty. And while he now had many ships, Wells also had few places to base them in the South. He had, to list the entirety of the matter, just four. Fort Monroe, opposite Norfolk. Key West, down at the tip of Florida. Fort Pickens, also in Florida, but near Pensacola Bay. And finally Hatteras, so recently captured. And yet, the ease with which the Navy captured Hatteras revealed the weakness of Confederate power along that long coast. The sheer extent of it, and the apparent difficulty of capturing the major ports, seemed like a great obstacle. But perhaps, just perhaps, that might be transformed into a bastion of Union strength. After all, the Union Navy could go where the Union Army couldn't, and maybe that applied to the Confederate Army as well. So the Navy selected a new target, one calculated to make its deployments much easier. The waters off South Carolina contained, and still do contain, many large islands, quite near the coast. Although mostly resort communities today, at the time they were mainly inhabited by plantations. The African-American slaves there did grow sea island cotton, but the main cash crop was actually rice. The islands therefore had a number of advantages from the Union perspective. First, they had those large slave populations, who not coincidentally might not feel entirely loyal to the Confederacy. These could, potentially, grow food and cotton, both to support themselves and provide supply for the Union. The islands lacked connections to the deep interior, which limited their use as power projection, but also limited the ability of the Confederate military to retake them, even under the best circumstances. The islands were ideally situated along the coast, to serve as a refueling stop for ships traveling farther south, speeding redeployment. Plus, Savannah and Charleston were major targets for the Navy in the early days, and Port Royal Sound lay close to both of them, within a day's voyage. As an added bonus, taking the region could also cut another gap in internal Confederate commerce. It would not cut the railroads, of course, but it would still allow the Union to block naval traffic along the coast at another point. The downside lay in the tricky defenses the Confederates had already built. On the south side of the three-mile-wide channel, the Confederates built Fort Walker on Hilton Head Island. On the north side, St. Helena Island, they constructed Fort Beauregard. Controlling the sound and taking the islands would require the destruction of both of these points, as well as a fleet of small ships armed for its defense. These guarded the way to the small town of Port Royal. That's what the Union would make its immediate target. The man who made the final decision that Port Royal would be the target, and would then lead the Union fleet in attacking it, was Captain Samuel Dupont. 
Now, by the quirks of the military history at the time, captains in the Navy were regarded only equal in rank to colonels in the Army. With a certain amount of aplomb, DuPont immediately received a promotion to flag officer, basically an admiral. He became the first American so honored because the Navy created the rank, copying it from British service, so Lincoln could give it to him. This was important to the Navy, because the Army would detach a brigadier to support the effort, one Thomas Sherman, not the brother of William Tecumseh Sherman. It just wouldn't do for the Navy to let the Army take all the glory, now would it? But more significantly, the Navy would need to take the lead in actually reducing and capturing the forts and islands, and so it made sense for them to have command over the joint effort. DuPont's flotilla consisted of a whopping 17 warships, more than the Navy fielded at once in some years past. In addition, twice that number in mostly unarmed troops transports carrying the 12,000 soldiers assigned to Sherman's command joined them. The ships fit every profile imaginable, from the modern steam frigate Wabash to river steamers carrying troops stuffed into the staterooms. But they all sailed together. The fleet would outweigh the Confederate defenses at Port Royal by a wide margin, but perhaps not wide enough given the advantage of land defenses. Even after the example of Hatteras Inlet, they were not entirely certain about what kind of advantage that fixed fortifications might give. And, the attack on Port Royal would have somewhat fewer advantages compared to the previous effort at Hatteras. For one, the forts might catch the fleet in a crossfire. Additionally, the forts were much closer to the mainland and might receive reinforcements. And, they had a few ships of their own to support the effort. On October 29th, the assembled fleet set sail from Fort Monroe. Unfortunately, they immediately ran headlong into a brutal storm that scattered the fleet and sank one ship. Fortunately, another vessel saved nearly all the crew. DuPont probably feared the worst when he saw that only a few scattered ships gathered with him on November 2nd. Fortunately, it turned out that the chaos only halted operations for several days. By November 4th, nearly all the ships had arrived, and one by one, the flotilla pushed their way over the sandbars. However, the transports mostly sat impotently offshore. Although human deaths from the storm had been mercifully light, the fleet lost most of the landing craft, as well as a large proportion of the troops' ammunition stores. That threatened to make the entire operation a failure, yet DuPont was hardly going to give up. After spending November 6 preparing his forces, DuPont set the assault for the following morning. In effect, he intended to improve upon the attack plan at Hatteras Inlet, following a suggestion by one of his captains. His warships would steam up the channel, passing the forts, then circle around and return towards the sea. In the long passage, they would have ample opportunity to blast both forts while staying on the move. This would amplify the firepower of his heavy guns while minimizing his risk. He would also post a few of the smaller gunboats in the advance to prevent any attack from the small Confederate fleet. DuPont launched his assault just before 10 a.m. on the 7th. And things almost immediately went slightly wrong. Not that it ultimately changed the outcome one whit. DuPont, leading from the front in the Wabash, sailed out first to demonstrate the course he wanted the whole fleet to take, followed only by the Susquehanna. The two of them mounted more than 30 guns together, 
and put a heavy fire on the forts by themselves. Unfortunately, the rest of the fleet failed to get the message, apparently literally. They instead started bombarding Fort Walker on the south side of the channel. All the while, an increasingly frustrated DuPont frantically signaled them to follow. Several of the ships did finally figure out the point and began to circle as DuPont intended. Fortunately, the Confederate fleet, only a half dozen ships that mounted one or two guns apiece, represented no threat. They waded up the channel, but once DuPont's fleet advanced into Port Royal Sound, they turned tail and fled along the intracoastal waterway towards Charleston. The Little Mosquito fleet did nothing. The Union fleet accepted some sharp fire from the forts, leading to a trickle of casualties. Cannonballs smashed into the hulls, and scattered splinters that cut through men. Shells arced through masts, and cut netting. Yet the forts actually did little damage overall. In return, the naval gunners stripped to the waist and sweating hard as they pulled guns and reloaded them to fire off volleys as fast as possible, began silencing the batteries one by one. Eventually, DuPont got tired of playing and seized the moment. He sailed to close range on Fort Walker, whereupon he unleashed a withering fire that dismounted the fort's main armament. Within minutes, the garrison fled, and a boat full of marines landed and secured Fort Walker. Not content to just squat in the ruins, the soldiers and sailors began unloading mortars and heavy guns, making it clear that they intended to hit the other side of the channel even harder. Seeing the writing on the wall, the Confederate soldiers manning Fort Beauregard up on the north side also abandoned their works. In short order, the Union men captured that point as well. As it turns out, there were no Confederate reinforcements and no larger force to fall back on. And with no way to project power into the area, they had no hope of holding on to the islands at all. Yet another battle was done. DuPont's fleet suffered some damage, but only 30 casualties in total. Confederate casualties were also very light, but once again, their defenses had been crushed under the weight of Union guns and daring sailors. At a stroke, Confederate power on the islands immediately collapsed. All the white inhabitants fled. Yet under the pressures of the moment, they could not force their slaves to come with them. This created a unique opportunity for the Union. Something like 10,000 slaves lived in the offshore islands and they immediately found themselves in the unexpected possession of, effectively, freedom. In this historical moment, we also see how reality began to outpace anything short of the wildest dreams of abolitionists. Two months prior, Congress had passed the Confiscation Act. In rough terms, this sanctioned and slightly extended the contraband policy of General Butler. It was a war measure. It was designed to pressure slavery to a degree but not unduly upset the more conservative views of the border states, or the Upper South for that matter. It was still a radical act that reached into the military area and struck off the chains of many slaves. In addition, we should not entirely look at the literal text of the laws passed. In practice, abolition-minded soldiers and officers were already just looking the other way if they saw slaves electing to skedaddle northward. But even those who might not favor abolition in principle often had much better things to do than concern themselves with protecting Southern slavery. There were even those, such as General McClellan, who wanted to protect Southern institutions wholesale under the theory that radical action would fatally split the country. Yet, 
In practical terms, they often found they could hardly protect slavery, while at the same time fight the Confederacy. But, in the Port Royal campaign, the Union suddenly found itself going farther still. With the masters all fled, Washington would need to sort out some kind of solution to manage the local population, freed slaves or otherwise. Lest this seem hypocritical, understand that the Port Royal region was still a war zone. Soldiers and sailors would occupy the area for the next four years. Moreover, the African Americans there had no money in hand, trade to make use of it if they had, and had no existing system to sort out their own agriculture. That doesn't mean they were stupid, or that they could not have done so given time. But under the immediacy of the circumstances, official Washington thought it better to step in and manage the situation, particularly because they wished to turn it towards a war advantage. This was, therefore, not exclusively charity. The war had become a massive fiscal drain that threatened the Union with collapse if the debt was not carefully managed. Any possible way the war could be made to pay for itself, like getting food, cotton, or other goods from the capture of Confederate stores or southern land, well, that would make a difference. The results were a fascinating, if wildly erratic, clash of idealistic public service and narrow self-interest, with a heaping dose of incompetence. For the next few years, a flow of white bureaucrats, soldiers, teachers, would-be planters, and more came to these islands from the north. It seemed, as well, that no two of them could agree on any kind of policy. Initially, Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase would lead, but his own hand-picked commissioners bickered furiously about who was the paternalistic stooge for as slaveholders and who was the true guardian of the islanders' interests. Eventually, things settled down when the army took over. We may one day cover many of the clashing interests on these islands, as northerners eager for cotton government officials, and the African-Americans who actually lived there competed for influence. It's worth noting, even now, that while official policy from the Lincoln administration often tended towards the egalitarian, the officials managing that policy sometimes just defied it openly, and the distracted administration often failed to respond. In any case, all that lay in the future. In the moment, DuPont could take pride in his fleet's swift and lopsided victory, one he quickly extended into excellent results. Within days, he received additional gunboats, among the first of the initial batch built in 90 days. These fanned out at the shallow waters and blocked any Confederate trade along the swampy channels of the coast, as well as capturing prizes that tried to sneak around the sandy bars just offshore. Beforehand, such traders have prided themselves on running the blockade while taking very little risk, if any. Now they were shut down entirely. More concerning, at least from the point of one Robert E. Lee, was the fact that the Union began to harass any point the waterways reached, and they reached a vast swath of coastline stretching all the way from Savannah to Charleston. Lee, fresh off a humiliating skirmish at Cheat Mountain, and don't worry, we're going to discuss that fiasco pretty soon, had just gratefully received orders to a new post leading defenses on the Confederate coastline down in the Carolinas. Although the Confederacy did not know exactly what the Union Navy intended, they guessed well enough that some reinforcement might be required here. Unfortunately for Lee, he no sooner arrived than DuPont captured the offshore islands. That was also meant literally. Lee arrived at his new command the day before. 
he found there wasn't much he could do directly about the problem except endure it. Instead, he kept his soldiers busy digging in, creating new, stronger fortifications and entrenchments wherever possible. While certainly a forward-thinking move given later wartime history, it was also rather unpopular. The press dubbed him Granny Lee for his seeming caution. Later on in the war, he would receive the uncomplimentary nickname of King of Spades for his feats of chivalry. Nonetheless, while Lee could not halt Union attacks, he did minimize them, and furthermore, helped build up the confidence of the pro-Confederate population along the coastline. Whatever the limitations of the power of arms at his disposal, Lee correctly assessed that here his role was as much administrative and even diplomatic in nature compared to military. Jefferson Davis needed a firm hand to reassure the politically priceless cities of Charleston and Savannah. Lee provided as much as could be provided. Still, over the next few months, he would witness the Union inexorably extend their power down the coastline. Week by week, month by month, the Union captured every island and port south of Charleston. Of these, only Savannah proved able to resist northern naval power. Even then, Savannah was not precisely a port city, as it lay miles upriver. After secession, Georgia had captured Fort Pulaski at the mouth of the Savannah River, and this warded off the Union for now. Of some interest to the history student is that Robert E. Lee, as a young engineering officer, spent years managing construction work on both Fort Pulaski and Fort Monroe in Virginia. And that is where matters lay for some time offshore. For months, the Union would extend its power, but it would take time for the Navy to gather up strength for another deadly thrust. Our next episode begins much farther offshore, where one man who should have been helping DuPont at Port Royal instead decided to uh, spark an international crisis. So please join us for our next episode, The Trent Affair. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.